Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith and in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can teach the younger women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching of God, about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Well, remain standing, if you will, and I'll uh, lead us in a prayer. Amazing grace, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that hundreds of us here uh, have come to understand how amazing grace is. We pray for ourselves and all here that we would uh, not only sort of intellectually understand that, but it would wonderfully touch our hearts and therefore change our lives for your praise and glory. Amen. Please do sit down. It is uh, very good to see you here, Uh, very good to see uh, some new students arriving in Sheffield. You're very welcome. It's a great city. We hope you'll have a really good time uh, for the next uh, three years or however long you are in Sheffield for. Good to see uh, students back. And of course, very, very good uh, to see the Wheatley family. Uh, Wonderful on this uh, great occasion uh, to have Ruby uh, baptised. And welcome to you as you've come to uh, celebrate uh, today. Uh, You're very, very welcome indeed. 
Uh, Now, we began last week looking at this uh, series on grace. Uh, What does that mean, trying to think that through? Um, I think there'll be two things that would be helpful for you to do. One would be to um, turn back in your Bibles to the reading that um, Peter had uh, that read for us earlier, page 1199. Uh, We're going to get to that in a moment, uh, but uh, perhaps you'd like to find it now, page 1199. Uh, in the Bible. The other thing you might like to do is to dig out um, the sermon outline, the talk outline. Uh, that'll just help you see where we're going uh, in the next few moments, uh, uh, and I think that will be helpful. While you find your Bible and the sermon outline, let me tell you about Mike. He was a passionate man who said what he thought. He, what was the expression, wore his heart on his sleeve, um, wasn't afraid to state his opinion. Uh, I met him when a colleague of his uh, brought him to uh, Christian Explored. Uh, it was years ago at a different church, so you, you won't know him. Uh, but over the weeks, I, I got to know Mike. I think you'd have liked him too. Even though he was um, always ready to say what he thought, he listened to what others had to say and uh, didn't dominate the group discussion. Now, it was on week six when we were talking about grace, the thing we're thinking about today, that Mike came out with it. And we'd watched the video and I said to the group, so what do you make of that? And as quick as a flash, Mike said, well, there's one problem, isn't there? I said, go on. And he said, it sounds great being, given, being forgiven for anything and everything and it not mattering what you've done in the past or, or what you might do in the future. But here's the problem. I thought Christians were supposed to be good people, but this stuff, this stuff about grace means I can be a Christian and I don't have to be good. Now, in many ways, Mike had got it. At that point, he had, in many ways, understood grace. But I tell you about Mike, I I could just as easily have told you about um, Lydia or Joe or Graham or Will or Dave or Katie and many other people that I've talked to down through the years. But I recall Mike's conversation because, well, he expressed it so clearly, so well, so passionately. If grace means that we can be forgiven for anything in the past and anything we might do in the future, if getting right with God is not about my performance, then what is to stop me from benefiting from grace and then living as I like? Al and Sally are going to be teaching um, Ruby that very truth as she grows up. You might look back to what's happened today and say, oh, look, Ruby, when you were baptized, you were cleansed completely by the Lord Jesus Christ. It points to the cross of the Lord Jesus. You can be forgiven for everything. And she might say, well, that's good. I can just go and do what I like then. The author, Philip Yancey, put it like this. Grace has about it the scent of scandal. I like that. Did you get a whiff of scandal up your nose last week when we thought about grace and and the abundant kindness of our generous God towards undeserving people? If you weren't here last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter two and saw how God takes thoroughly sinful, spiritually dead people and makes them alive in Christ and saves us for eternity. It's all grace given to us freely and we were left with this question. What's amazing, what's so amazing about grace? But as you consider that question during the week, never mind what's amazing about grace, you might well have wanted to come back and say, I can tell you everything that's wrong with it. We're saved by grace alone. Where's the motivation for living ethically, morally, living for God? Why should I even bother being good if I can be forgiven for anything and everything? Do you see the problem? Now look, it's not a new problem. It was a problem during the Reformation. Now this term, we're looking at this issue of grace because... The 31st of October this year will mark the 500th anniversary of what is generally acknowledged as being the beginning of the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in 1517. 
And through the years that followed, Luther and others teaching the doctrine of grace alone as one of the key truths of the Reformation, uh, through the years that followed, over the next 500 years, the very problem that Mike expressed to me, the scent of scandal that grace has about it, was one of the big objections that many in the Roman Catholic Church had with the teaching of Luther and others. In the light of the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I've read these two books in the last uh, few months. Um, they're very, very good if you're interested. The, the Unquenchable Flame by Mike Reeves. Uh, it's a, a great book, sort of gives you a history of the Reformation, but it's very warm, and if you don't like history, you'd love this anyway. Um, and then this book, also by Mike Reeves, but also uh, written with uh, Tim Chester, uh, Why the Reformation Still Matters, sort of more doctrinal, don't let that put you off. It's, again, very easy to read, and talks about the key doctrines during the Reformation, that, uh, why they were so important. Now, in this book, Why the Reformation Still Matters, Mike Reeves and Tim Chester explained that at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church did teach salvation by grace. But the Roman Catholic view of salvation by grace is very different to all that we were seeing in Ephesians chapter 2 last week. In short, the Roman Catholic view of grace is that God gives us grace or gives grace to those who've helped themselves. We often say that, don't we? We say God helps those who help themselves. That's not what the Bible says. As one of the team put it last week, it's as if. God gives us a leg up. You know, we're trying to reach the heights that God wants for us. We're making the effort, but we can't quite do it. But because we tried and because God sees us trying, he gives us the extra help we need to put a leg up. He gives us grace, a kind of spiritual boost, the boost we need to be good enough for God. So in Roman Catholic teaching, without God's grace, we wouldn't be able to reach the heights that we should, and therefore salvation is by grace, but it sort of added to our works, our efforts. What Luther and the reformers taught was radically different. They taught that salvation is by grace alone. Because as we saw last week, our problem is not just that we're unable to reach God's standards. We don't just need a bit of a leg up, a bit of a help. Our problem is that we are dead in our sin. And as spiritually dead people, we don't even begin to live for God. Dead people can't do a thing to help themselves. We don't just need a bit of assistance. No, said Luther and the reformers, we have to rely entirely upon Christ. Our salvation is by, not just by grace, but by grace alone. Nothing to do with our efforts. Now, if you want to think more about that, I commend this book to you. Uh, chapter four is the chapter on grace. The whole book is worth reading. But chapter four is the chapter on grace. The point then in all this is that the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace and by grace alone. Again, it's what we've been thinking with Ruby. She can be cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ completely. The opponents of this teaching hate it because it sounds as if it gives us an excuse to sin. With heaven in the bag, if I can put it rather crudely, doesn't it, it doesn't matter how we live, does it? Now, of course, the wonderful truth of grace has been abused like that over the years. I remember a friend of mine, after he'd become a Christian, talking to his dad about Jesus. And his dad says, when I worked in South America, my work colleagues went to the brothel on Saturday evening and then to church and confession on Sunday morning. And his dad continued, I didn't care to go to the brothel with them and I don't care to go to church either. Now, the wonderful truth that we can be forgiven freely has been terribly abused but to live like that is to misunderstand how grace not only saves us, but it also teaches us. And now, finally, we've got to our Bible passage. Turn with me, if you will, to 
Titus chapter two. And the first point on the handout, grace teaches us. Look with me at verse 11. For the grace of God, there's our word, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Grace has appeared. There are two appearings in this Bible passage. We'll come to the the second one in a moment, but you'll see it's in verse 13. And the appearing in verse 13 is the appearing of Jesus Christ on the final day of history as we know it. So uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to come uh, back, not as a baby, but in all his power and glory to be seen by everyone. There'll be no doubt who is king on that day in great power. Now that helps us to see that the appearing in verse 11 is the first coming of Jesus Christ. When, as John puts it in his gospel, Jesus came to us full of grace and truth now the saving grace of God is completely bound up with Jesus Christ in verse 11 Jesus has appeared to all men that is he appeared to all kinds of human beings men and women boys and girls Jews and Gentiles he appeared to all in that sense and crucially for us this morning look what we read next I'll read again from verse 11 the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men it teaches us to say no to ungodly and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see, grace teaches us, and first it teaches us to say no, in the words here, to ungodliness and worldly passions. This addresses Mike's issue, and the problem of many 500 years ago, as Luther and others began to teach the wonder that salvation is by grace alone. Grace doesn't just save us for eternity, but it teaches us now. Understand grace and rather than see it as a a ticket to ride any lifestyle we like, we'll find ourselves saying no to being ungodly. We'll say no to worldly passions. Remember last week if you were here how the world keeps trying to pull us away from the Lord? Grace teaches us to say no to those things. No, I won't go that way. But more than that, grace teaches something very positive. Look, uh, second half of verse 12, if I can put it this way, grace teaches us to say yes Uh, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So grace teaches me to live differently, and I love that last phrase in verse 12, in this present age. Grace teaches me to live differently now, while I go about my everyday life now. It's not just about, you know, all about heaven. It's about now. Again, Mike's problem. If by grace I can be forgiven for anything and past, present and future that gets me into heaven, what's to stop me living how I like now? I thought Christians were supposed to be good people. What's the answer? Grace is the answer. Grace teaches me, not only saves me, but it teaches me to live a completely different life. As it says in verse 14, grace will make me, at last bit of verse 14, eager to do what is good. Now the big question that arises as we read verse 11 and 12, is how does grace teach me to live this kind of good life? Well, from grace teaches us to say no and yes. Secondly, on the handout, grace teaches us to wait properly. Verse 13, again, I'll read from verse 12. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Here, as I've already said, is the second appearing in this passage, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. When Jesus will come in all his power and glory in judgment, he will wrap up history as we know. It'll be the last moment in the history of the world And there are two ways you can wait for that event. 
you can wait for it wrongly in fear and trepidation. We've, we've witnessed that kind of waiting in the last weeks in the, in, the Caribbean, in the Caribbean and along parts of the east coast of the USA as people have waited for Hurricane Irma to hit. They waited for a storm the likes of which I think anybody's seen before, such power. And as they waited, most did all they could to prepare, boarding up their homes and taking shelter. But it was such a terrifyingly mighty force that there was no way they knew whether they'd done enough to stand against it. They tried their best, but who knows? Now, in the same way, without salvation through Jesus Christ by grace alone, that's how people face the return of Jesus Christ in all his power and glory, much more powerful than any hurricane. Facing the awesome power of the judgment of Almighty God, people wonder if they've done enough. They wait, but fearfully, frantically, perhaps running around. Maybe some people doing lots of religious things, other people doing lots of moral things, trying to secure their salvation. Will I have done enough when Jesus Christ returns for me to go to heaven? They certainly don't know whether they have or not. What a horrible way to live. That's waiting wrongly. It's the way Martin Luther lived before he really understood the gospel. He tried his hardest to be right with God. Fasting, praying, going on pilgrimages to holy sites. Indeed, his friend Philip Melanchthon wrote this of this. Now, this is quite a thing when a friend writes this of you. Talking of Martin Luther, he not only applied with the closest diligence to ecclesiastical studies, but also with the greatest severity of discipline, he exercised the government of himself and far surpassed all others in the comprehensive range of reading and disputation with a zealous observance of fasting and prayer. Might be one thing for me to say, oh, I'm very zealous and prayerful, but it's quite another thing for somebody else to say, I've never seen anybody live like that. Martin Luther lived a good, moral, religiously serious life. But it gave him no peace of mind. It is so much so that when he, a very close friend of his died, when Luther came face to face with death, he became terrified of the thought of the judgment of God. The wrong kind of waiting in fear and trepidation. But there is another kind of waiting, a, a right kind of waiting. My wife, Caroline, and I We'll celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary on Tuesday. I don't know how she's put up with me. So we're celebrating. I'm celebrating that she has put up with me for so long. Uh, She's been congratulated that she's managed to do it. And we celebrated by going on holiday to Italy in August. Just Caroline and I without the children. I love my children, but I really enjoyed being without them for two weeks. Um, And we booked uh, early in the year. And uh, then we had to wait. And we waited expectantly. As we waited, nothing was in doubt about the holiday. It was paid for. We had the tickets. We were going. Just had to wait for the date to arrive. But of course, while we waited, we didn't just sit around. We prepared. We bought sun cream and I bought a new pair of shorts. We, we changed our money, got some euros. We, we dug out our sunglasses because we hadn't needed them all summer in Sheffield. Um, and um, closer to the time, we packed our bags and put our passports in the bag as well, of course. But waiting for our holiday didn't just mean sitting around doing nothing. There was stuff to do while we were waiting. Getting ready was uh, was part of the fun, actually. It was all full of positive expectation. It's not perfect, but that helps to express a right kind of waiting. Because of grace, 
I wait positively and expectantly for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. I don't fear judgment day. I don't wonder if I've done enough to be right with him and you know, pass the final judgment exam. No, by the grace of God, everything is certain about the future. It's all paid for, if I can rather crudely put it like this. The tickets are bought. So I can look forward, verse 13, to a, do you see it there, blessed hope. It's a wonderful thing. I'm going to be with Jesus. Better even than going on holiday to Italy with my wife, who I love very much. Indeed, thinking in terms of loving marriage is exactly the way to think of it. I want to be with Caroline. Well, in the same way, the Christian should long to be with Jesus. I want him to return so I can be with him. And I have no fear that he will reject me on that day because of grace. And now as we wait, grace teaches us. See, this is how this passage works. Verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. See, a grace puts me on a new trajectory. I'm heading towards a life with Jesus beyond the grave for eternity. That's what I'm waiting for. This is brilliant, actually. You know, I'm, I'm going to be 55 later on this year, so I, I'm sort of aware I'm getting old. Looking at the wedding photos, you know, from 25 years ago, I looked a lot younger. I was a lot younger. And, uh, you know, as you get older, some of you will feel this, you know, you kind of feel, what is there to look forward to? just going to, sorry to depress you, you know, I'm just going to get ill (laughs) and the world puts me on the scrap heap. Not for the Christian. Everything still to come is much better. Everything, everything better is ahead. You're not just, you're on a new trajectory, a great new trajectory. And so just as in preparation to go on holiday to Italy, I pack the sun cream and the sunglasses. So in preparation to be in Jesus, I'll live the sort of life that I ought to live, that I will live when I'm with him then. See, grace not only saves us, it teaches us, teaches us to say no and yes, teaches us to wait properly. And thirdly, and over the page on the handout, if you're still with me, grace teaches us to look back thankfully. It's verse 14. Verse 13 has talked about this great appearing of Jesus Christ when he comes back in all his glory. And then it says, verse 14, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So as we've just seen, grace uh, will make me look forward. I'm looking forward to being with Jesus for eternity. But grace almost may also makes me look back, back to all that Jesus did for me on the cross. Where, verse 14, do you see it there? He redeemed his people. Uh, you know the word redeem. Uh, to redeem is to buy something back, to pay a price for it. I buy that back from you Uh, but in the bible it's the language of the slave market because that is what we were before we were christians we were slaves uh, jesus says everyone who sins is a slave to sin i never knew that verse uh, all many years ago when i became a christian but it was one of the things that the, the point of it was one of the things that made me become a christian uh, i was becoming aware that um I wasn't the sort of person I ought to be. I I was 20, living at home with my parents, uh, about to leave home because I was buying my own flat. I think I've told you this story before. A few months before I moved out, my mum said to me, you treat this house like a hotel. Now, she must have said it many, many times before. 
And of course, she was right. Oh, I'd probably ignored it a bit before. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Yes, I did treat this house like a hotel. And I began to realize that I was a really selfish person. And so I tried to clean up my life, tried to be good. And I could not do it with all my efforts. I'd have never expressed it like this at the time, but I was, in Jesus' words, a slave to sin. Sin had me in handcuffs. I couldn't break free. No matter how hard I tried, I kept sinning. I had the desire to do what was good, but I couldn't do it. Well, that was my story. I mean, more importantly, 500 years ago, Martin Luther felt exactly the same thing. In his attempt to get right with God by his own efforts, Luther saw how deep his sin went. Every day he would confess his sin and, and then try and start afresh. He couldn't live it. He couldn't live how he was supposed to. And even when he did begin to get things right, he felt smug and pleased with himself. Haven't I done well today? Even when he went to confession, he started to feel very pleased with himself. And then he was eaten up with pride. Couldn't break free. He was a slave to sin. And as we saw last week, sin leads to death, spiritual death now, Physical death one day, and worst of all, eternal spiritual death beyond the grave. What am I going to do? I'm a slave to sin, I can't break free, and all I've got to face is death. But, verse 14, Jesus redeemed us from all wickedness. He paid a price to set us free. I think many people have expressed their Christian conversion exactly like that, this kind of idea of being free, set free. John Bunyan, the 17th century author of Pilgrim's Progress, write, Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my affliction and irons. And then 100 years later, the, the hymn writer Charles Wesley, and we're going to sing these words in a moment, described his coming to Christ in these famous words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Listen to this language of, of being chained and imprisoned. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Jesus redeems us. He paid a price to set us free from the power and, and condemnation of sin. He did that at the cross. And when we get that, it changes us. Does the name Tony Bullimore mean anything to you? It, it might if I remind you that it was 20 years ago in 1997. Tony Bullimore was the round-the-world yachtsman who capsized in the Southern Ocean, 900 miles from Antarctica and 1,400 miles off the coast of Australia. And having capsized in one of the world's most treacherous seas, he was completely helpless to rescue himself. He couldn't swim anyway, he couldn't get, and it was so cold in the icy seas. He was doomed. He sent a mayday message. And then he spent four days entombed in the upturned hull of his yacht trying to survive the seas. He was in pitch darkness, made a, apparently made a, a makeshift hammock to sort of suspend himself out of the sea. And he survived until he heard a diver banging on the side of the yacht. The Australian Navy had picked up the Mayday and the frigate, the HMAS Adelaide, had sailed, I think, full steam ahead for four days to reach Mr. Bullimore. He said, no way he could have got out of it. Four days, full steam ahead. Had the Australian Navy not come, he was, he was a dead man. In, in, on his own, he couldn't do anything. And he knew it, and so after the rescue, he said... It, if I was picking words to describe it, it would be a miracle, an absolute miracle. 
apparently after being rescued, he asked for a cup of tea and told the chief petty officer, um, if, you, if you didn't have a beard, I'd kiss you. Which all the chief petty officer was glad he had a beard. <laughs> uh, the rescue by the Australian Navy and Air Force was estimated to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. But Tony Bullimore's life had been redeemed. Huge price paid for a man's life. And here's the thing for us. Having been rescued from the sea, and after drinking a cup of tea, it would have been odd if Tony Bullimore had said to the chief petty officer of the HMAS Adelaide, Adelaide, oh, thanks very much for saving me, and then shook his hand and then promptly dived back into the sea. Now look, in the same way, having been rescued by Jesus Christ from certain eternal death, having been redeemed, verse 14, from all wickedness, it would be very odd to dive straight back into a life of wickedness. Do you see how grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and wickedness? It was ungodliness and wickedness that got me into such a mess in the first place. Wickedness left me helpless and doomed before God. It's exactly what this baptism is all about. Alan Sally will teach Ruby as she grows up, you know, there is no way you can save yourself, but you can be forgiven and washed clean. And you see, here's the thing, having been rescued from a terrible life of rejection of God, I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. I'm certainly not going to deliberately dive headlong back into it, am I? And all the more when I consider the cost, it costs Jesus himself. Do you see it there, verse verse 14, those three words, he He who gave himself. Jesus gave himself for us. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. This rescue, the rescue that Jesus brings us, didn't just cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was far more costly than that. It cost Jesus his life. He gave himself for you. That's how much he loves you. He gave himself a little ruby. That's how much he loves her. And when I get that, it teaches me to say no to ungodliness. Oh, this didn't happen, but just imagine, to push the illustration a bit farther, imagine that when the Australian Navy had arrived to rescue Tony Bullimore, an Australian sailor had reached down to pull up the stranded yachtsman onto the frigate, and as he pulled Bullimore to safety, the Australian sailor fell into the sea and was washed away by a huge wave and perished. Well, our salvation cost Jesus his life. So he pulled us up, he, except it wasn't an accident. He died quite deliberately and willingly because dying on the cross was the only way we could be forgiven. Now getting that not only teaches me to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion, but it teaches me to say yes. Wow, Jesus, you've done all that for me. I want to live for you now. That's the reaction when we really get grace. And you see in verse 14, Jesus redeemed me from sin in order to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. A people his very own. I belong to Jesus now. He bought me at a great price, a huge price, his life. When I get that, I won't just go off and live how I like, jump back into a sea of wickedness, enslave myself again to be chained to a life of sin. I'll be thankful and grateful and live quite differently. Not reluctantly trying my best, but, end of verse 14, eager to do what is good. 
grace, the abundant kindness of our generous God towards undeserving people. When I first hear about it, I might smell a scent of scandal. Like Mike, I might see the great problem of grace, but when grace grabs my heart, when I get Jesus, I discover it's not scandalous at all, it's glorious. Because grace teaches me to live a completely different life. More than that, it makes me eager to do good for all the right reasons. Let me pray for us now. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's a very wonderful and sweet sound, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ dying for us. We thank you that we can be saved by grace alone, nothing else. And we pray that it would not only be something that we rejoice in because it saves us for eternity, but uh, that it really does teach us as well and therefore teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to living a self-controlled, upright and godly life in this present age while we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. Please may this message of grace be truly life-changing and transforming for your praise and glory. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to sing. Um, A couple of things before we do. Um, Firstly, uh, if this sort of thing is new to you, uh, again, thanks very much for coming. I've got some booklets. They're called Just Grace, and I'll be with them on the door uh, on the way out. And you might think, I'd like to know know about this grace that can be so life-transforming. Just just grab one from me. I'll be standing there. Uh, The other thing is that uh, we've been um, kind of setting a question to talk about over lunch. Uh, during the week and it's on the bottom of the handout how does grace teach me to live a good life that would be a good thing to, uh, to think about just to sort of cement it